Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and this is the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. I'm a Canadian-Australian, hence my funny twangy accent, and I love to work with CEOs and teams on the tough stuff in leadership, namely the people stuff. My guest today also loves the people stuff. Her name is Dr. Audrey Tang, and she is a charted psychologist, so she's taken the people stuff to the nth degree. She's the author of two books, with a third one coming out a little bit later this year. She is an accredited speaker trainer. She is the resident psychologist on the Chrissy B Show, the only UK TV program dedicated to mental health and well-being. How cool is that? She is an absolute dynamo. She is full of energy. It was an absolute joy to speak with her. And we cover off on a lot of stuff in this interview, including what are some leadership insights from COVID-19 that we're experiencing, what we can do to build resilience in ourselves and our organizations to withstand these kind of shocks and unexpected occurrences, and how can we influence others by adapting our approach and leadership style. There's plenty of good juiciness in this interview. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please press forward on your device and share this with somebody you think would appreciate the insights from Dr. Audrey Tang, like I sure did. Okay, let's get into it. Audrey, I'm so excited to have you on board. You're like a little ray of sunshine. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you so much for having me, Zoe. I'm so excited to chat with you. (laughs) I could tell you're just brimming with energy, which is exactly what we need in the middle of the pandemic. So kudos to you for maintaining that level of enthusiasm. Oh, thank you. I think it's really important. I mean, just to kick off psychologically, there is research which shows the more positive we can keep ourselves, the healthier we can be. We recover faster. We pull through things faster. It underpins all of our resilience. So whilst it's a very serious situation at the moment, it's a horrible thing going on right now, but we need to stay strong. Oh, absolutely. And it's a tough thing to do. And we'll talk about the ins and outs of how do you actually get yourself psyched up in a positive way through something as challenging as the pandemic in just a moment. I want to know, first of all, origin story. How did you decide to go into all this people stuff? Like you're a psychologist, you're immersed in leadership, you love the people things. What kicked that off? How did you get started? I've always been fascinated in people. And I think it's because I was an only child. I am an only child. And so you look around for people to share your life with. And because of that, you meet a lot. I was always surrounded by adults. And I think that had an influence as well. And academically, psychology, the theory of it absolutely fascinates me. And where I think psychology misses out sometimes is it has these amazing theories, these brilliant ideas, which are applied in marketing, they're applied in all the different businesses. But for me, if you can apply it in training, if you can actually use what marketers say that we do and actually then use it so that you can train your brain to either counter it or work with it or take advantage of it, then you're firmly in the driving seat. You can be much more successful. And so I think that's what brought me into leadership and into organizations. So there's some really practical things that like practicality seems to be woven into your your key focus and your key message. Let's go back to that first point you made about we need to absolutely be focused in a positive way. How do you actually go about doing that? Uh, One of the things that I find is important is surrounding yourselves with people who energize you. We hear about I call them emotional vampires, people who just suck the life out of you. They exhaust you. And 
our life consists of meeting different people all the time. It has to. But if we can focus on those who keep us positive, who energize us, that makes a huge difference. So partly it's choose the people around you wisely. But the second thing for me is just absolutely staying true to your values. And if you do that, then the right people almost will be drawn to you. And I've got just a really simple exercise, which I do. And that is just simply identify what three key values are important to you, whether it's kindness, generosity, positivity, whatever they might be, and really focus on living at least one of those every single day. And that sounds silly because we think, oh, well, there are values. We live them all the time. But you'd be surprised how often someone might say, oh, I just really want people to be honest and straight up with me. And actually, the way they react to others is more coercive or more hinting around the subject as opposed to honest and straight up and that in coaching is when I can say to them well you're expecting this behavior but you actually come across in this particular way and this is where online meetings are helpful because if they want to record that moment they can actually look back on it and it opens a dialogue into asking well how do you think other people will react to you if that's how you come across to them, our behavior affects others. So people are so important to energizing us and keeping us focused and positive for when we have to go through the exhausting moments. Yeah, I like it. So be what you want to see in the mirror, really. Totally. Yeah. And then people reflect uh, how they show up. I actually, this is, this is a question I have for you around projection and, and Jungian theory of projection. <laughs> this is slightly off topic, but as we talk about mirrors and putting out there what you want to get back and what you, how you want to, other people to behave and how you want to behave. So my understanding of Jungian theory about the shadow is that we criticize in others what we repress in ourselves. What's your understanding and experience of that? Do you subscribe to this Jungian theory of shadow? I actually really like it and it underpins one of the exercises I do in my sessions. I ask people to name things that they don't like in other people and then I ask them to reflect on how much they have seen it in themselves previously because we do absolutely have a tendency to react strongly when we can see somebody doing something which we work hard against. So for example, when I used to train teachers, there was one person I remember who absolutely had a bee in her bonnet about a child who suffered racism, which was absolutely horrible. And she herself had been through those sorts of experiences. She was a, a, a Christian woman married to a Muslim. And that I think caused her a lot of struggles as well. She'd been through a lot. And yet when she was talking about a child who had cheated, and when you think we're not talking about necessarily saying which discretion is worse, but they're both discretions. She was far more willing to accept the cheating than she was to accept the racism. And I'm not saying that, I mean, racism is horrendous, but when you can treat one transgression far worse than another, I think we do need to question what's driving that. So in that, so if I've understood this correctly, so she rejected the racism as an experience more strongly than cheating. Far more strongly. And as a teacher, you need to be balanced in your approach. You cannot suddenly say one thing is far, far worse and deserves a far greater punishment than another. You need to be disciplining both areas. So with the Jungian theory of 
projection then. So there's probably aspects of within her where she's judgmental and racist. That's what you're saying. There, or it's something that I, I think it's more that it's something, the shadow is something which you just carry with you. I don't necessarily think it's something within you that you struggle with repressing but I think it's something that has had a very negative impression on you, whether it's because you've suffered it and experienced it. But to me, the shadow is more akin to a chip on the shoulder mm. to that, which actually is unfair because when you talk about racism, then we're talking about a wound. And even when a wound scars over, that scar is still there. If you touch somebody who's been fractured or hurt in the past, you can't then be surprised when it breaks. So for me, I believe when you're the shadow is much more to do with a negative belief or a negativity that's carried with you, not necessarily because you are it or because you were it or because you're suppressing it, but because you've experienced it in some deep and painful way. Mm, okay. So that's, that's a different angle looking it's at, different, at, yes. at what we carry with us. Yes. Baggage. <laughs> Just call it baggage. <laughs> yeah. Baggage. Absolutely. It's a, but I like the use of Jungian shadow to explain that baggage. A lot mm. of these theories, I do believe, especially in psychoanalysis, they can be outdated. They can be based on very shaky evidence but what i like about them is they're easily accessible and they're easy to understand and because of that they work very well as a metaphor to try and explain a lot of psychological concepts that are going on right now like baggage it's a good accessible metaphor to be able to use mm. in any case your example shows that we've the woman had an experience that caused her to be triggered very strongly about a particular incident and i think that's a useful entry point for self-awareness. You know, whenever we have our buttons pressed, whether we judge others for something or whether we get angry about something, there's something within us that is not completely resolved. 100%. And that's where, when you talk about projection, we connect so greatly with programs. Love Island is just one of the examples. You can either love it or hate it. And the ones who hate it, the vitriol, it's got to come from somewhere. And I sometimes think you project a lot of unresolved feelings about emotions and relationships onto these characters. And partly then you forget they're real people. But the amount of name calling, you sort of think, what relationship have you not worked through yourself? <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit scary, isn't it? So I'm just thinking, I'm writing a note here. Triggers are unresolved stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think that's that's a useful way to look at it, actually. So anytime you feel yourself getting really amped up by something, I'm thinking about political situations or political characters. What is it within my own experience that's unresolved that's making me feel so strongly in response to this person or situation? Absolutely. And it's who might they represent? And largely, I seem to find a lot of anger comes from the feeling of not being heard. So it was something deep that is meaningful to you that somehow someone didn't hear. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And that could lead to repression. That could lead to changing a whole pathway. But that's often where the crux comes in. I think this um, offers for me anyway, it's offering new insight on the riots that we're seeing around the USA at the moment. So at the time of the recording this interview, riots have erupted all over the USA with the terrible death of a young incarcerated black man who was being arrested and then 
killed by his white police officer minders. And there's been riots all across the country. And I think what you, your point is, like, if you react so with so much anger at the not being heard piece, resonates with the narrative that we've heard about why is it that people are going to such extremes because that behavior rioting looting violence is extreme and it's obviously pushed a lot of really strong buttons and a lot of those strong buttons have come through shame humiliation and those are very very real emotions and a lot of the time we we don't really have the opportunity to express them or learn sometimes to express them in a healthy manner. But what's also quite sad is what's not being seen in the protests. There are some incredible shows of solidarity between police and the black community. This is white police and the black community. There are incredible shows of protection between the white community and the black community. And I find it sad that those aren't being seen almost to support a narrative, whatever that narrative might be. And so, again, one of the key things I ask and I ask people to ask themselves is what story is that person telling me and why? And sometimes what story am I telling others and why? It's hard to get a finger on what the multiple stories are because we only see it through the filter of media from a distance. Yes. And even in our own lives, we'll see it through the filter of our own experience as well. And that can be quite damaging too. As a leadership expert, you know, working with leaders, I'm guessing that you help them to try and look at things from different, as many different angles as possible. How do you encourage people to do that? It can be through coaching, can be through training, but either way, it's getting a gateway into why people think the way they think. Uh, so one example might be a team training day. I use escape rooms. They became very popular in around 2012 and have grown in popularity since then. And it's where you get locked in a room and you solve puzzles to escape. But I have a tabletop version. <laughs> and what I find in that scenario is a team will get so immersed in the story, so immersed in trying to do what they, they need to do, that they interact as normally that they would. Whereas when you're in a training session, it can be a slightly artificial situation and people will say cognitively and intellectually, oh yes, I would do this, I would do that. You throw them in a situation, add the time pressure on top of it, suddenly they're behaving as they would under pressure on a normal day. And that allows me to then say, well, why did that happen? So as an example, I was working with a PR team and one person got absolutely fixated on picking a lock, trying to pick a lock. And I reflected this back to them and said, you know, how does that affect you in your daily life? And they said, oh my goodness, actually I can sit there for hours worrying about what font to put on my invitations and then forget to send them out completely. <laughs> I get so <laughs> sidetracked into this one thing. And this can be what opens the dialogue. So it's almost about putting people in a real situation which has no outer consequences. That's the beauty of immersive training and then allowing them to reflect and to think about it. Another example where the leader came into play, the leader was playing with their team. And I recognized that the whole team were actually feeding back to the leader and saying, oh, I found this puzzle and this is how it's explained. And the leader said to them, it's okay, I trust you. You just give me the answer and I'll write it on the board. And they hadn't realized how much their leader actually did just simply believe in what they had to do. And actually the answer was correct. And so that gave them that extra confidence to recognize that they were being trusted when they were delegated and to be able to almost get on with it with that new sense of personal authority that they had. And so 
these sorts of exercises allow people to reflect on how they behave in an environment which has absolutely no dire consequences outside. I mean, if you go wrong outside, you could lose a lot of money, you could lose clients. But in this situation, you're able to reflect on it and not necessarily change anything. You don't have to. But by being aware, you have the opportunity to. And so that's what underpins a lot of my training. I love it. So I'm an experiential educator as well, have been for a long time in a different, a little bit of a different modality. I use the outdoor experiential education. So, you know, bushwalking, problem solving, using canoeing and kayaking and, and rock climbing and um, yes. expeditioning. And it's similar. You know, you've got to problem solve as a group and you throw them into an unusual circumstances and put them under pressure and you get straight to the heart of the matter about how people actually interact under pressure. And a lot of the game face or the business face gets stripped away pretty quickly. Absolutely. And uh, you can have some really juicy debriefs about why people behave they did, how they felt in those interactions. And you expose not only how you show up as an individual, but how people interact and what it means for each other. So I think that I love that you do experience that. Tell me a little bit more about the escape room. So you have a tabletop version. Do you actually also go into a enclosed space and do it like the actual escape rooms? You can use both. And it depends on whether I, I've got a great team that I can work with. Um, they're called the Panic Room and they're in Gravesend in Kent. And they have a number of escape experiences and a few battle rooms, which means you can have a few teams playing at the same time. And because I've got a great relationship with them, I can sit with the games master, look on the CCTV and be able to do my observation at that point. But Otherwise, yes, a tabletop is more convenient if I'm called into an organization and an organization isn't able to go and book an escape room or an escape room in their area doesn't have that facility. I can cater for up to 80 people at one time on various different tabletops and then walk around and observe the room. So either or works. And you find like the table, the tabletop version gets the, as, as much of an emotional impact as an enclosed space or not? Yes and no. I mean, you're limited with storylines on a tabletop in that I have to set it in a conference style, and, um, you, but you're still timed. They're still set as if they're in an organization. And I think because they can see their competition around them, there can be a greater intensity because you can hear how other people are getting on. It's like when you're in an exam and someone does that and you think, I've not even started this question. <laughs> they're locking up and going. It's like, what? Yeah. What? And you can hear the other table cheering and it's like, no, your competitive spirit gets triggered. Uh, but that's really funny. The cheering, this barely happens. I, I think I've run two training sessions where you've even had one team that's gone, well done. That's really good. Really? And that's a great opener. Yeah. Great question to open with. What happened to the motivation? And I know they loved working together and they, they're smiling, but there's no voiced praise. And it's almost that, again, allows them to talk about, oh, yeah, maybe I thought it, but I was a bit shy to say it or I didn't want to do a high five. Or, <laughs> and, and I think that's because that's not in that outdoor situation, because I know if I was I mean, I did a zip wire for the first time at the end of last year and my friends were, oh, woo, you know, it was cheering. It was exciting. But. Even in a, in a conference situation, I think even then you do have that sense of, oh, what is my behavior expected to be? <laughs> so you, you get that adaptive behavior coming through as well sometimes. Yeah. Oh, a little bit decorum. Yeah. It gets tempered by the environment. I love it. So big question. 
you work in the leadership space. How do you define leadership? Uh, leadership, I think, defines itself because you really can only be a leader if you have followers. And to me, that's that's that, really. You can have the position. You can have the name. You can be given the authority. But if no one's going to follow you or they're all following someone else, how much leadership do you actually have? And that's why I think I'm so focused on the person and who you are and how you lead because you don't have to lead in the same way. I do another exercise, which is an aerobics class where <laughs> every <What>? delegate, yeah, <laughs> every delegate has to come up and take one bit of the class. It's a tag team. So you do eight steps and then you tag someone else in, they do eight steps and you get a whole range of things. You get people just marching on the spot. You get people completely out of time with the music. You get some real gung-ho kickboxing. Oh yeah. You know, you get all sorts, but it opens that dialogue into, if you're out the front, people are expecting you to do something. So you better do something. You don't know when leadership's going to arise. You won't get on with every single style, but people will follow it if they know they have to, but they will have preferences. So for the leader, what they can realize is, well, my style is this, but they will follow that. And I followed that when I had to. So what you can learn from that is you don't have to be a certain person. You almost have to just be you, have something to say and say it well. And that's when people follow you. So for me, leadership is just simply when someone's going to follow. Wow. I'm fascinated. So you get, I'm just stuck on the aerobics thing now. <laughs> Imagine these people getting up. <laughs> so they're brief to get up there and do eight steps in whatever style manner that they choose. The idea of guiding the rest of the group. Yes. Yep. And everyone has to do it. I've done it in conferences as well. <laughs> I've had volunteers in that case, but the whole floor is up there. And yes, it's weird. And yes, you do have CEOs sitting there probably thinking, oh my goodness, what's that? But in the debrief, I also go through that. And I will say, it's okay if you thought that. But then if you're introducing, as a leader, if you're introducing change to other people, some of them will be thinking that too. They'll be thinking, oh my goodness, why am I doing this? How are you going to convince them? So it, again, allows you to talk about so many different aspects of how you can encourage people. Yeah, I love it. That's great. So I'm curious about this then. Does the whole idea of energy and persuasion come up in those debriefs? Yes, but in the sense of how do you persuade? How do you energize? And sometimes when it comes to energy, you can talk about different styles. Some people energize simply just by being and doing. They don't have to be, uh, I'm quite peppy. I'm quite a cheerleader type of person. <laughs> really? But doesn't, well, yeah, yeah no, how could you tell? <laughs> but it really doesn't work for everybody. And certainly I do, I'm lucky to have a couple of clients who are very different. And I work coming across very differently for them as well. And if you can adapt, you are more flexible and are more likely to be able to engage many more people and persuade many more people. So again, I think with engagement and persuasion, you've got to talk about flexibility too, the ability to adapt, the ability to read the room and modify your behavior according to what's needed. You are still imparting the same information, the same material, but you have to allow 
other people to digest it in their way and if you can say it in different manners and if you can come across in slightly different ways then that really helps I like it. So you can encourage them to think about the aerobic style leaders and going, okay, well, sometimes you might have to be drill sergeant and sometimes you might have to be Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And sometimes just write it on the board and leave it there. Let them get on with it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So leadership lessons in COVID-19. So like you, I've been watching what's going on, observing leaders in in situ and what's going on what are your insights from what we're experiencing there was a lot of i don't want to say unpreparedness because i think that is unfair i don't think anyone really can prepare for something of this magnitude but um one big thing i don't know whether it happened in australia but it certainly happened here we hoarded toilet paper i'm not entirely sure how we all thought we'd cure a disease with toilet paper but Nonetheless, we hoarded toilet paper. We had the TP saga as well. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> How are you going to cure with that? But anyway, looking a little bit more deeply into this, it all became, oh, well, it was panic buying. And then I was asked, you know, as a psychologist, why was there all panic buying? And, and yes, panic buying is a form of feeling in control. And then when the supply runs out, that is when you panic and buy some more. But when you go a little bit deeper, what actually happened as well was it was the supply chains that are broken down. Because leading up to the pandemic, our lifestyles had changed. We'd become much more, oh, I've run out of toilet paper. I'll just pop down the shops and get a roll of toilet paper. That's how shops were supplying. It was just on that immediate demand. And the supply chain had been leaned down so much to cater for it that suddenly when everyone wanted to stock up for the next month, that wasn't possible. Whereas if we'd actually maybe gone back 10 years, say, where the monthly shop was the norm, then maybe there would have been stock. Really? There was a norm? There was a norm. There was a norm. You know, we would do it, the weekly shop, the monthly shop, that kind of thing. But we've become quite, the consumerist behavior has changed quite a lot. And organizations were changing to respond to that. But the problem is, same with cuts, same with redundancies, same with streaming down departments. If you go too lean, then there's no flexibility. There's no give. You're so at the wire that there's nothing you can do about it. So one of the biggest lessons that I now teach organizations is how lean is lean. If you're going to make cutbacks, if you're going to stream it down, make sure you've got either some give or make sure your network is strong enough that you know who to go to if you have run out. Oh, that's really powerful insight. And what do you mean? Like, do you mean that in terms of human resources or? Anything, anything, whatever it is that you are cutting down. And it's necessary to cut certain things. It's necessary to trim the fat, as it were. But make sure when you're trimming that you have that plan B to go to, which means that if you have to build a relationship with a contractor or you have to build a relationship with somebody else or another organization, or you have to have a team that's able to cope, that you have them. I mean, related to that, because I, I use gaming as a metaphor as well a lot. Sometimes you need to have a number of different skills and a workforce that has a number of different skills. Because certainly at the moment, we have people who are over a certain age group or who may have certain underlying conditions and they're shielding. So they're not allowed to go to the workplace. And if you don't have a workforce that could adapt and take on their work, 
then you have a problem as well. So it doesn't hurt to have some people with a general ability or certainly at the moment if you have a general ability if you have that ability to be able to step into anything to be able to turn your hand at something and have a go at it and do it this is your opportunity for the understudy to become a star so sometimes it doesn't hurt to be a bit of a jack of all trades even though that sometimes is frowned upon we look for specialists we look for niche workers but you wouldn't ever start, say, a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. I know that's not cool, maybe. <laughs> but you wouldn't start one of those with all warriors or all merchants or all soldiers. You would have a variety of skills. And when you're skilling your character, you would give them your warrior is not just strength, strength, strength. They will have some other abilities. So the more you have got a workforce that can turn their hand to other things, again, the more likely it is you will survive in a crisis. So these are really lessons in resilience and redundancy. So that's what I'm hearing you say, is that people have thrown out the idea of resilience and having redundant systems and just going, kaka kaka to like, we're just like smooth, a smooth, lean operating machine. But if something shakes it, it all collapses. Precisely. And my next book is, in fact, The Leader's Guide to Resilience. And strangely enough, I started it before COVID-19. I'm finishing it at the moment. And it's really been able to sort of grow from, from what I'm going through and experiencing right now and what I'm seeing. And one of the things I've recognized is that resilience comes in three dips. You have to navigate three dips. The first is you have to survive. There's a crisis and you have to survive. And if you then survive, and this is where we're getting to right now, you're exhausted. Soon, our key workers, they're going to be on their knees. The community spirit is not going to be as strong as it was when it first started. You're not going to be running on adrenaline anymore. And through exhaustion, you have to rebuild your business. That's when you need your collaborations. You need your network. You need other people to help you. And then when you're finally at normality, when people talk about the new normal or some people want to go back to the old normal, the way I see it, why stay at normal? You need to thrive after that. Whatever that normal is, you then need to push above that. But as you push above that, people are also now competing because they've also rebuilt. So you need to then thrive through the competition. So resilience is navigating the three dips. It's crisis, then survival, exhaustion, then rebuilding, competition, then thriving. And setting out the skills. Resilience is like physical fitness. It's not about being physically fit. It's about training that muscle. So when you need it, it's there for you. It's training your emotional and mental fitness muscles. And it's there when you need it. So why wait until you're tested? Train it, particularly when it's calm. How do you train for crisis when it's calm? Well, it's, that's when you get back to self-awareness you get back to what makes me motivated what keeps me going who is my network who can i connect with it's there's a lot of self-reflection and there's a lot of knowing where you'd like to be in the future and how you're going to get there potentially and then putting in those skills in order to do it but a lot of the time we're quite reactive all of these things we can do when we have to change or we have to have a restructure but if we set the planning in motion now, if we think right now, okay, well, when we get through this, where does my business need to be? How is my market changing right now? So if we're lucky enough at the moment to have downtime in our homes, in our comfortable environment, now is the time to think about what is my new normal going to look like? At the moment, for example, building resilience when it's, it's not 
necessarily calm, but if you are lucky enough to be having some downtime in your home, then think about, well, you're not seeing certain commitments. You're not being part of certain commitments. What are you actually missing? Then when you rebuild, rebuild the ones you're actually missing. So if you take the time now to think about it, think about what matters, think about what's important, think about what skills you need to have and not just the skills that you need or want right now, but the skills that are going to benefit you in the future. This is the time to do it. And so that's what I mean by planning ahead. When you're not in crisis, it's the best time to lay the groundwork. So if you're lucky enough not to be in that key worker position and certainly be grateful for that, but use the time. That's really good. That's really, really helpful. So you have lots of great advice for people. What's a piece of advice that someone has given you that's been really good? You can't save people from themselves. That's probably one of the biggest pieces of advice. And as a leader, as a coach, psychologist, a caring person, we want to help. We really want to help. But if some people aren't ready to come round to that just yet, then you've got to let them come there in their own time because at the end of the day, they are adults. You have no right to change their life. And we can just keep banging our head against a brick wall and exhaust ourselves where, whereas we could actually turn our energy somewhere else and be ready to return less angry or resentful when that person is ready. So simply you can't save people from themselves. Just don't keep pushing and um, enforcing yourself on somebody when it's just not going to happen yet. I think that's a lovely insight because as caring people, we want the best for others and we can see them doing self-harming type of behaviors or self-sabotaging kind of behaviors. We feel like we must help them. <laughs> it must stop them from doing that. Yeah, you can, you can go so far. You can signpost, you can support, you can give advice. But if you are just so consumed with that one person at the expense of all those other people, you could be supporting as well. You can only go so far. So it's another way of saying you can only lead a horse to water. But I think just sort of pulling the person back into it is quite important. Mm. So you've talked about your upcoming book which is great. Leader's Guide to Resilience, did you say? Resilience. Love it. Yes. And you've got your second book out right now, The Leader's Guide to Mindfulness. Mindfulness. (laughs) What was your first book, Leader's Guide to? Uh, No, the first book was Be a Great Manager Now. (laughs) Be a Great Manager Now. (laughs) Then I started writing for the Leader's Guide uh, series. (laughs) Yeah, wonderful. So the book that you've currently out there, The Leader's Guide to Mindfulness, what is the number one strategy you'd tell people that they could walk away with? Mindfulness is not an extra skill that anyone's telling you to learn. It's a way of pressing pause, which gives you the space to reflect, reframe, and then restart in a more effective manner. It's anything that allows us that moment of calm, that allows us that moment of serenity in the madness that goes on in the world because our world is so fast paced that is one of the most valuable moments that we can have because it allows us to just stop that treadmill. It allows us to take stock, check our compass, see whether we're still heading in the direction we meant to head. And it allows us to say, hang on a minute, let's just make that change. And so the whole book, it comes in lots of different ways, lots of different exercises to encourage that, but it's all leading to the same point. 
any of those exercises encourage us for that moment to just stop, broaden our mind and think differently. Yeah, I love it. That's a great, great way to finish the a podcast interview. <laughs> I love it. Great insight into mindfulness. Audrey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute delight listening to you and hearing your perspective on leadership, on resilience, on so many different things. And I'm so grateful to have you. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Zoe. It's been absolutely brilliant. It's been so much fun. It, in the UK, it's 6.45 in the morning and you've got me up. Fantastic. You know, <laughs> but it's been great. What a great way to start the day for me. Wow. You're looking pretty scrubbed up and wonderful considering it's so bloody early. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Hey, that was super fun. She is such a fun person to interview. I just love her energy. It was a delight to speak with her. I could have spoken to her endlessly about many things. Probably the thing that's sticking with me most out of this interview is the question, how lean should you go? And I think this has got applications in so many different worlds. You know, if you look at athletes who go too lean and they get sick easily and crash out because they've got no reserves. If you look at organizations that cut their resources too thinly, they've got nothing to shock absorb if they lose a key person, say, for example, or if a key supply chain gets decimated by some incident or other. I think the whole idea of building redundancy to create resilience in your personal and professional life is a really important one. And I'm thinking about the resilience and redundancy and connections in my own personal world and how important it is to nurture these in good times so that they are there in bad times. And even though we're in bad times, we can still nurture them. So key takeaway for me is how to build redundancy and resilience across all the aspects of life and work. Phew, I love this interview. I hope you did too. If you did, please press forward and share this with somebody that you care about or on the socials. You know how people love to get recommendations from cool folks like you. Thanks very much. In the meantime, live well, lead well.